Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Fight Diggy, Tribe Core Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Absol. This is K.O. And you listening to the Come Up Show with that feel-good music list. Hey. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. Yeah. What's going on? Welcome to the Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Martin Bauman. And today I've got a very special guest for you. My guest today is one of the most talented Canadian hip-hop artists. Many have made the mistake of underestimating her if they've never seen her on stage or heard her before, but she will demolish you on a track. She's earned props from everyone from DJ Premier to Pete Rock, which pretty much says it all. And her 2010 album, At Last, which she did with Moss, was nominated for a Juno. That's right, my guest today is Eternia. I caught up with Eternia bright and early one morning to talk about the importance of gratitude, learning to be present in the moment, what life after hip-hop is like, and lots more. Take a listen. Why don't we start uh, by going back to the beginnings? What would have been the first introduction to hip hop for you? Wow, I tell this story a lot. Um, my brother, my brother is two years older than me, and so and when I was a kid, way back when, um, around I don't know, eight years old probably, uh, he was listening to what was popular at the time, like what a kid in Canada could get his hands on and keep in mind, like the methods of discovering new hip hop in Canada in the eighties for a white kid in Ottawa was really different than it is now. So <laughs> <laughs> so he was listening to um Run DMC and L O Cool J and later two live crews listening to Public Enemy, he was listening to um yeah, there was a couple different groups. And so that's that's how I was introduced to hip hop, but I didn't really formally take it on as my own love until I started, you know, copying my own records and that would have been early nineties golden era. Um, type stuff like Tribe Called Quest and Diggable Planet and Matisa and Salt and Pepper and you know so that was my the 80s was kind of like I was on the tip I was on the edge and then the 90s was basically when it became my first love. So what what would have been that first album when when you really claimed ownership of of hip hop as something that you really loved? What was the one that you went out and got and was like, wow, this is this is something else. <laughs> Man, that is a good question. There is a number, um, but one of them that comes to the top of my mind immediately would be Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory. Mm-hmm. Um, not People's Instinct of Travels, but I actually was introduced to Low End Theory first before People's Instinct of Travels, and then I went back. So, um, so yeah, that would probably be one of the first times. It wouldn't be the first, actually, Salt and Pepper. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. Salt and Pepper, I, I, now when I look back, it was kind of like, you know, they were, they were kind of pop hip-hop at the time, you know? Um, I wasn't listening to, to organized confusion yet. You know what I mean? But at the time, like for a young girl, I was probably 13, um, when, uh, Very Necessary came out. And, uh, yeah, man, that's something that, that definitely, that definitely resonated with me. I went and saw them in concert and all that too. So, um, a couple albums, but those are some that I can think of. Yeah, how how formative would it have been to see Salt and Pepper to see women in hip hop at such a young age? Uh, describe the impact of, so- of something like that. Oh man! <laughs> well, there's a line that I have a shoe. I lied to my mom to go see him um, in the front row 
she didn't know they had a song called Push It and Let Me Go. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, I saw them at Canada's Wonderland, and um, I did sneak up to the front, and I'll never forget that. It's literally like I could tell you about that concert like it was yesterday, and that was over 20 years ago. <laughs> I could tell you about it like it was yesterday. Like, it it was um, very empowering, very empowering, and, and really exciting. And for the longest time, um, I could probably think of nothing else other than doing hip hop and being on the stage and, and being, for me, it wasn't about fame and it wasn't about money, but it was about kind of being recognized and being accepted by my peers and by the industry. And so for the longest time, that's what I felt I was fighting for. Uh, one of the one of the ways that you've described yourself and your music is as a walking anti-stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, how come? At the time that I was really um, doing my thing, uh, so I would be like mid-90s, late-90s, early 2000s, you know, um, I guess straight through. But uh, there wasn't a lot of people that, uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me, whether it be gender, race, nationality, that was doing it. Um, not saying they didn't exist at all. I'm not the only one, but it just when I would go out to jams, um, I was definitely one of very few, if not the only person that looked like I did, you know, at hip hop. And now it's different. So, um, so yeah, I just think that there was a lot of assumptions that were made, I guess, about me. Um, and I didn't take offense, but I just really relished the idea of kind of proving them wrong. And so the minute I would grab the mic, it would actually be good to the point where. At one point, I think that was undeniable. Like, um, it's not like people could really say, oh, she sucks. You know what I mean? So at mm-hmm. that point, I think that I was kind of like, I relished the idea of shattering the stereotype of whatever people thought I was before um, I got on the mic, but when I walked in the room. Because, you know, there were assumptions about people that looked like me that were at hip-hop jams. Like, either were a groupie or were someone's girlfriend or we don't know nothing about the culture and we're just kind of tag along. You know, there was a lot of assumptions at the time. There was a lot less girls involved. Um, so yeah, I, I guess in some ways that's what I meant by a walking anti-stereotype. Do you think, um, you know, standing out so much as you would have, do you think that helped you or hindered you more than anything? Long term, I think it helped because it was easier to be remembered. If I went to an open mic and there were, you know, 20 or 30 people that go on the mic, I promise you that I would be remembered. You know what I mean? It's hard to stand out when, um when you kind of look like everyone else or even sound like everyone else. I think for me, um, not to say that I played up on this or took advantage of this or took took this for granted, but for me it was kind of easier to stand up just by virtue of the fact that nobody saw it coming. And that's another thing too, when people really underestimate you and uh, assume you're going to suck, it's really easy to impress them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's like they already (laughs) think think that, you know, you're not going to be good at all. So I think in the 90s that's what I experienced a lot and early 2000s is like um, it being really easy kind of. For me, mm-hmm. uh, at a certain point, uh, but then at the same time, of course, then you get into like kind of systemic um, barriers, and and those are not easy to break. And I think those impact any artist a lot greater than just being remembered at a show. So I guess yeah. you know, there's pros and cons. It's easy to wow people, and at the same time, um, there are certain barriers that are just almost um, impenetrable, really. What? Tell me about those barriers and what it's going to take, you think, to eliminate those systemic barriers uh, for future generations, uh, future people who want to get involved in hip-hop. I think, I hope, I assume it's changing, I think, on a business level. So this really isn't about the art and, I guess, the person you're involved with. Well, you know what, it's not just on a business level, it's also when it comes to creating the music, but 
I experienced it. I'll, I'll just say that I experienced more on the industry level, on the business level, and that would be that, um, you know, you could be a really established artist with a lot of experience under your belt and kind of know what you're doing and what kind of sound you want to hear and where you want to go with your music and uh, have really good ideas for promoting it and uh, for marketing it. And, you know, you could have all these great ideas, but um, I found uh, that my ideas were best conveyed if a man said them. Uh, I, I Trust me when I say I said them, but I feel like they were not received or viewed as mm-hmm. professional um, or viewed as good ideas unless I had someone else kind of convey them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I see that. Or that's a great idea. Or let's try that. You know, it's very and, – and I have many, many specific examples. I'm not just going off one example. Time and time and time and time again, it would be like the male intern saying what you're turning your thought. The male intern who has way less experience or, um, you know, maybe my manager or maybe someone else. But, it, it, you know, it was never, I, I feel like it was rare that um, that my ideas were received as kind of expert ideas or even professional ideas um, in the sphere of, of once we started really producing music and it being a business. Um, and that was, at first, you know, I was bashing my head against the wall and that was frustrating, but then after a while you just learned the tricks. And so I'm like, oh, I need someone else to say this for this to be received. Well, okay, well, let me send in this dude to this meeting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't really do things without my manager, who's lovely and does respect me and does listen to me. But <laughs> I couldn't, yeah, he's great. But I, I couldn't really do things without him, not because I couldn't do things without him, but because I um, I didn't feel heard, you know? And um, and I have it easy. I actually have it good. Like, I'm not complaining. I think compared to women that are more um, pop or mainstream or trying to make a label, their experience is much more pat-pat on the head. You're a Coke bottle. You know, we're going to tell you what to wear and what to say and, and how to do your show. So for me, I still had a lot of control. Like, you're talking to someone who was quite independent, and I and I still experience that in, in certain levels, in certain ways. Um, you know, what label to sign to, how the album was mixed, what it sounded like, uh, what what would be great ideas for promo, who who to hire as a publicist. Like, just the little minute details um, were just things that I felt kind of not, like, as if my opinion didn't matter, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't think it ultimately I personalized that. I, I just keep it moving and just my, my whole view of things when it comes to systemic barriers or even like my own personal stuff that I face was, you know, how do we problem solve this? How do we get around this? That's always what I was trying to think. Like, I was just like, I know there's a way around this. So how do we do that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I think yeah. well, oftentimes that's what we do, you know, thanks be to God. Yeah, you know, doors closed. You you look for the window that's open. I guess, right? Yeah, like there was never, it was never a point where it was like, oh man, I want to stop. Like there was never the glass ceiling. I never felt the thump. You know, I was just like, I like, I think I have a line like that too. Like I'm, you know, close the door on me. I'm climbing through that window, grinning or whatever it was. Like I forget the line. Yes, yeah, you final offering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, final offering. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, it, it it wasn't depressing. It was just like a reality. Hmm. Uh, you said something earlier that I want to bring up. Um, you said something to the effect of, uh, in the past, what mattered to you musically was was getting the respect of people, getting their attention. Uh, but it seemed like um, you kind of hinted that that doesn't matter so much anymore to you. So what does matter at this point? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question, meaning I asked myself that. Um, because uh, I think the fire that was under my butt to do everything I did was due to proving something, right? Like I was trying to prove something. 
And then there was a moment where we kind of reached this apex. I say we because there were team members that helped me along the journey. There was a moment where we kind of reached this apex and it was kind of like when everything aligns. It's almost like the image, the sound, the artwork, the music, the most important part, like the shows, like um, the press, like when everything just all of a sudden started to make sense and click, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's right, that would have been, I, I would say that was that last. That was around 2010. And before that, I could see if people listened to my music and then saw me. And then, you know, it would have been a little confusing. It's like, oh, she could rap. But, like, everything wasn't aligned yet, you know? And then at last happened and everything aligned. And then, to be honest with you, I was kind of like, okay, I've done what I wanted to do now. I'm done. Like, it was really weird. I yeah. it, it was something that I saw coming because I used to rap about it even before. When I say rap about it, I mean that's just my heart, right? That's my thoughts, my emotions, my, my internal being. So I used to rap about it before at last. I used to say, yo, I'm going to break out. You know, like, I'm going to be done. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go do something else. Like So I was rapping about it before at last, but then after at last was received as well as we could have ever hoped it to be received, um, it got as, as much press as we could have hoped for it to get it. You know, it, it did what we wanted it to do. We had very humble uh, aspirations, but it did exactly what we wanted it to do and more. And so once that happened, it was kind of like, okay, I've done my bit now. I kind of made my little mark. It's not huge, but I made my little mark, and um, I'm good. So to answer your question, and then, um, like, if there's different seasons in an artist's life, right now I'm kind of in a gathering season. Like, I'm just here experiencing sensory things. I'm not really putting out sensory things right now. I'm not creating music. Yeah, I, it is interesting you point out at last because it uh, it definitely seems like you know at the time at the time after it came out everything musically was going so well. You had the the Juno nomination. You had DJ Premier saying it was one of his favorite albums that year, and uh, it's it's such an you know an unconventional process. You think artists, and I guess it all depends on what stage you at in terms of what what you draw satisfaction from. But you think a lot of artists would say that and they would go, okay, I'm going a hundred. 20% into the next year and it's going to, you know, mixtape, mixtape, mixtape. Uh, instead, you decide to take a step back. What what has become uh, more important to you at this point then? <laughs> That's a very, very good question. Um, there was a whole bunch of intersecting factors that led for me to take a step back, but it definitely wasn't a... It was, um, the, the desires of my heart and the priorities of my mind were changing and are changing. And so... To ask the question, I really self promotion and just having um a job based on basically promoting myself and what I think uh just became really empty for me. And when I say self promotion, I don't just mean promoting a product. I mean the fact that my art, my music itself is kind of in a way, I guess the way I did music was very self reflective too, right? It's the only way I knew how. And so that became really empty for me. Uh I wanted to be involved in something that would be serving others. And yeah, I know that artists say, well, once they're big and make it, they can like earn in charities and nonprofits and they can go out and be a voice for people. And I was doing that at the time, but it wasn't enough. It felt like it was more, the, you had, uh, the payoff wasn't enough, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to serve others more. I didn't want to be, I also did not enjoy the music industry at all. I feel like what's wrong is right and what's up is down. And and, I, and so I think on an ethical level, I was, I was, or a moral level, I was often just feeling um, kind of a pinch a bit, you know what I'm saying? Like living the life I wanted to live ethically and spiritually and yet still operating in the music industry, which was um, not impossible. I think people like Shad do it well, 
but I think it's very difficult. Um, that's why I admire people like that. And and then also, like, I just didn't want to be a starving artist in my 30s. Like, I kind of saw the reality of where hip-hop takes you. And it's not to say that I couldn't make money out of it. I was, but I I wanted to, like, you know, I thought about things like family and kids and, like, you know, just owning a home. And, and when you start to think about that kind of stuff, now, that's not the main reason why I left music, trust me, but it was just, like, I can't see myself doing this for the next 10 years. I really can't, or 20 or whatever. Like, I know that there's a lot of artists that do, and I respect that. I really do. Like, artists that are still doing it, like Master Ace, you know, and has a great live show and putting out records. Like, that's awesome. But I just, um, I was done, man. And you know how I knew I was done? It's like you listen to your heart when you're somewhere at a show. Like, I used to get ready for to go to a hip-hop show or maybe to perform or even to be in the audience and to network or whatever. And it was like I was dragging my heels if there was the last place on earth I wanted to be. So it got to the point where I was really resenting what I had to do for my art and for my craft. And, and I didn't want that to come to start to leak out in my music or on stage, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, what did become more important. But I guess um, uh, the pursuit of another career, which I am doing now, um, pursuit of, I guess, more just um, at the end of the day, it's not that I'm not hip hop anymore. It's just that there's more dynamic sides to me. Like, it's almost like I don't want all of me to just be about hip hop. I wanted there to be all these slices of a pie. Like if my identity is, you know, a round piece of pie, it's like, I want that 20 different slices, not just one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so I really wanted to pursue some other stuff and, and that's something I'm enjoying. And if ever I have an album in me, trust me, it'll come out. I think the other the other added benefit you have is now whenever there is a new song, like when Final Offering came out or like when you hop on Shad's track, it's like all of a sudden all this attention is like, wow, 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 Eternity is back. And, you know, it, it allows you to make these statements individually whenever you have something to say that I think people instantly turn their heads and want to listen. That's really cool. You know what? I never thought of that. I never thought of that, but you're right. I guess um I guess there there is that too, which is great. Love Memes was like um, it's probably one of my favorite songs I've ever collaborated on, uh, ever. So that was so special when that came out. That was really special to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to I want to ask about a couple tweets. I was doing just trying to find some research beforehand, but uh, came across a couple very interesting ones I want to share with you and get your perspective on. Uh, one of the things that you said is the best protection against the indulgence of rage and self-pity is Thanksgiving. Mm. Now, tell me about that. Yeah, that's a quote. Uh, that's a quote from one of my devotionals. I don't remember which one, but I, I read different, um, I guess, scriptures in the morning and interpretation of scriptures, and that was one of them. Um, the best uh, protection against the indulgence of rage and self-pity is Thanksgiving. It's, it's basically... Um, you know, it, it's what I understand, like in my faith, uh, God asks us to do, you know what I mean? Uh, and everything be grateful, you know, with prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God, but everything be grateful. So I think I tweet things. This is the secret that people that really know me know. Usually when I tweet things, it's not me pointing fingers at other people. It's me reminding myself of something. So most of my tweets are like things that I need to remember that I'm writing down in my journal and then I'm also sharing. So that was one of them. It's just like, I think there's times where we can all fall into these dark places and bitter places and it really consumes us or self um, angry places or uh, feeling sorry for ourselves. We all do that too. And and we have good reason. Like I'm saying good reason, like um, most of us, have, a lot of us have some pretty tragic or traumatic or just, you know, sad things that happen to us or our loved ones. So it's like, you know, there's good we have an excuse if we want one. 
but I guess that's why I tweeted that because it was like, man, like, I, I feel like we need tools, you know what I'm saying? Like, we need tools and a toolkit to be able to, to raise up out of that, and that was one tool for me, and so that's why mm-hmm. I shared that. You mentioned just beforehand uh, the the experience of working on a track with Shad. When I talked to him, that's that was the one thing he said too. Is uh, the the greatest path for him for sustained happiness was was giving thanks and and uh, like the the greatest key to being happy all the time was just gr- gratitude. So it's it's interesting to have that connection. I think that's really cool. Yeah, and he said it much simpler than me. But yes, that's basically it. <laughs> My grandma, you know, I'll say this, my grandma's like the wisest woman I ever knew, and she's my best friend, and I remember her telling me that she used to lie in bed, and before she would fall asleep, or as she was falling asleep, she would try and do like, I guess, 20 blessings, or like 20 things that she's grateful for, and she said she usually fell asleep before she got to number 20, but that was her process, and you know, in a, in a lot of ways, that could be viewed as a meditative process, you know, that was her process before she fell asleep every night, is she was going to go through 20 things that she was grateful for, and I think that when she was 95, 96, 97, in a long-term care facility where she really didn't have control over a lot, that was something that she really needed to do to exercise for Thanksgiving, to stay in that spirit, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another tweet of yours, uh, also relates to happiness. You, you wrote, uh, being present equals joy in moments that others would bypass as mundane. Mm. Tell me about that. It was It was the idea that we kind of steal from ourselves these amazing experiences, like I would call them almost like magical or whatever, when we're not present in a moment. And then the reverse is true. If we are present in a moment, the most normal experience, for example, walking to work or taking the train or, you know, anything, making breakfast, it could be the most mundane experience can become something of awe and something of wonder. It's basically just like what kids are like. Like kids are so present in the moment that like, you know, we're worried about stuff, we're running late, we're like, come on, let's go, and kids are like, oh, mom, look at that bird, or like, you know, and, and everything to them is like, wow, you know, and, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is that that can be, it can be that way for us, if we really learn to be present, um, and it's hard as adults, it's really hard as adults, we have so many pressures, and so many things on our mind, and so many worries, and so many unknowns, I think we like to control everything, so all of that kind of bear, bears down on us, so that was just a reminder once again, to myself and to others, that, that the joy is very accessible, um, and that's another tool, you know, to reach in that joy is just literally like being present. And a lot of that involves unplugging. I'm really big on digital detoxing right now. Like, I'm not um, as good as some people. I haven't shut off my phone completely or my internet completely, but I find that uh, our devices are not only time stealers, but they're joy stealers a lot when it comes to being present. And so I'm real big on like putting down the phone when I'm around people or, or even just I'm learning now. I even have to do it when I'm alone with myself. That I, that alone time is not truly alone time if you're on the phone. You know? What do you think the biggest thing that you've learned from unplugging is? I have to think about that for a moment. I have never felt so refreshed and peaceful, like and at peace until my phone was stolen. And I had one night, because I had really good phone insurance, right? So like within 48 hours, they mailed me a new phone, right? Mm-hmm. But I had one night alone with myself, you know, no calls, no texts, no la, 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 at my house uh, between when I got the new phone and when the old phone was stolen. And I felt like literally like I had just been to some meditative place or a spa or like, like it just felt like my brain, like 
And I'm sure that if you were to hook up my brain to some sort of like reading device, scientifically, this would be true. Like my brain activity, like I was so calm and so relaxed and so happy. And so I learned from that experience that I was forced into that I need to do this for the sake of my well-being. It's like, you know, people talk a lot about self-care and um, I think a huge part of self-care is, is, um, is unplugging for sure. Uh, one more tweet I want to bring up. This one, you say, life's necessities are not the same as ultimate life purpose. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> thank you. That actually, I mean, thank you for bringing it up because that actually is a quote from my stepfather. See, I get wisdom from all these people. And when he first said it to me, he was like, oh, what did he say? He said, necessities are not ultimate. And I didn't understand where he was going with it. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, what we need in life, you know, food, clothing, shelter, you know, work, love, partnership, like whatever it is, Right. Yes, these are things that we need, but they shouldn't become our reason for living. And once they become our reason for living, our life purpose, it's very easy for basically us to not want to live, right? Like you lose a job, oh my gosh, I want to kill myself. You lose your boyfriend, oh my gosh, I want to die. Like it's when necessities become ultimate that um, that we're screwing that we're we're screwing ourselves over and we're setting ourselves up for um, major calamity, really. So it's almost like keeping things in perspective when it comes to what is and isn't important and what isn't instant priorities. Yes, we need to eat. We all need food, clothing, shelter. But that shouldn't be our reason for living. Our reason for living is is, is much higher than that, I think. You know? you know, it's like, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the example of uh, like this teacher filling up a, a jar with a bunch of golf balls and he says like those represent the basic things in life that you need and then he fills it up with a bunch of different things just to show that like no matter what, uh, there's there's more and more things to life. I don't, I'm not I'm doing a terrible job of explaining what I'm trying to <laughs> to, no, to bring up here. But I think what you're saying though exactly. And I think for many people, and I think we all can get caught in this trap. I think at one point I probably did. For many people, um, our life's like either extras or necessities become like purpose, and 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 that's when your ground, your foundation, because really it's about the foundation, right? That's when your foundation is really easily shaken. Mm-hmm. When, when you build it on this sandcastle, you know what I'm saying? Like you're literally living in a sandcastle. Like we do that a lot and it's to our own detriment. So I'm just learning, you know, I'm learning. And as I learn, I share, but most of my tweets are things that I need to hear that I'm learning. Yeah. Well, well, I think that's true for most people. You know, you, you write as a reminder to yourself. Exactly. You mentioned earlier that you, you are, you're considering going back to school. What do you think that you would go back to school for? Oh, well, I actually was um, studying for, um, I forget the the name of the examination when you're about to do like a PhD or a master's in the States, because it's not the SATs, it's something else. But um, it's a while ago. I was looking at a program at NYU for a while, and it was a PhD program. Um, and it, it, it it's sociology in a nutshell, which they call American studies. They don't call it like cultural studies. They call it American studies, which I find funny. But um. But it would have been it would have been something to do with gender and and hip hop really is what I would have done, um, which has been done before. But I was I was excited about that. Honestly, to be honest with you, I would go back to school for anything. But for me, cultural studies and sociology are, are where my passions lie and research. But then the funny thing is, is I probably wouldn't become a professor because I really don't want to teach. So it's kind of like, why do you go back to school for something where you will not make money at all? There's no way unless you teach. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of counterproductive. Um, but yeah, I, I, I could have gone to school for something practical as well. I was accepted actually at George Brown for social, for the fast track program for a social service worker, the one year fast track program. And then I ultimately ended up accepting a full-time job 
that kind of uh, enabled me to skip that program and still do what I wanted, what I was hoping to do ultimately. So, um, so yeah, I think if I was to go back to school, it would be for recreational purposes. It would literally be a luxury. It wouldn't be, I need to upgrade my skills to get a job, you know? Mm-hmm. I also am interested in a little bit more of like uh, the death and bereaving type um, stuff, gerontology certificates, just because I work in elder care right now. And I'd, I'd like to learn a lot more about how to be a better, um, I guess, elder care professional. So, so yeah, I would do that stuff too. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly interested in everything. <laughs> like, I'm just one of those people <laughs> that would like to learn. So if I could go back to school for free and not incur debt, there's many things I would do. <laughs> Yeah, tell me, tell me if you learned the secret to that. I'd like to know too. About yeah, exactly. Going to right? school well, for free. Well, that's why I was looking at. To be honest with you, that's why I was looking at the PhD program at NYU because certain private universities, if you actually get into the program, they not only fully fund you, they give you a stipend to live. So I was like, word, if I could actually get into this program, um, that would be something that was fully funded. So not easy. Oh my gosh, it takes away your life for years, but but definitely there are some fully funded programs. Yeah. Uh, final question I have for you. What what does life's next chapter hold for you? Uh, you know, I, I've been, I realized this like not that long ago. Everything that I wanted to do in life, like my main bucket list, has been done. And it's probably because my bucket list was really realistic. And so because of that, I feel that where I'm at right now in life, early 30s, is kind of like the icing on the cake and the bonus. So I'm quite open to wherever God wants me to go because it's almost like, okay, God, like I did what I wanted to do selfishly. I did what my dreams were. I literally did them. And so now it's almost like all of this that I'm living, this life that I'm living is a bonus. It's a addendum. It's kind of like the the sequel, you know? And so I'm really open to uh, a lot. I'm really open to almost anything. I'm I'm really kind of at a free place in that way, and and if I was to die tomorrow, I always tell my everyone that I love, all my loved ones, that um that I've done everything I want to do and I'm happy. Like they're I, at this age, I know it sounds crazy, but um that's not to say there isn't more things that I could experience. There's many things I haven't experienced, but I've done uh, what I want to do. So so I guess the answer to your question is only God knows, and I'm open to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anything else that you still want to add before uh, we wrap things up? I just want to thank you guys for following up. It's funny because when my manager hit me with the um, with the interview, I was like, well, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, There's no new record. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's no new record, and yet you still want to check in. And for that, I'm really blessed and really grateful. And um, and I remember the Come Up show being backstage at my, I believe it was with Chido, uh, my at last album release party, and um, if I remember correctly in 2010 at the opera house and um that, very, that sounds very, right that, yeah say what that that sounds right yeah chetto would have been there yeah and so uh very memorable interview very well done and and i've always followed you guys since so i really respect the fact that you're um you're connected well there you have it if you want to know more about eternia go to the comeupshow.com we've got more music and interviews with her there if you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Come Up Show. If you're in Toronto this Thursday, July 31st, come out to see Boss on his last winter tour. He's performing at Tattoo Queen West. The Come Up Show will be there. You can come say hi. And if you're in London, coming up on August 16th, I'll be having a mixtape release party with The Come Up Show. AFOS and Bo Rizzle are performing too, and there will be a silent art auction and raffle prizes with all proceeds going to Unity Charity. It only costs 5 bucks to get in. And it's for a good cause. That's about all I've got to say this week. Hope you enjoy the show. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. 
Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.